Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. There is so much new to watch, listen to, read, and discuss, whether you're binge-watching, downloading, or looking for the next great read. NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast calls out the best, most creative, and most fun things out there. Something new to make you happy? Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Find it on iTunes under Podcasts. Sometimes numbers can tell a simple story. So here are some numbers from Oregon, which has had a Death with Dignity Act since 1997, allowing individuals with terminal illnesses to get lethal prescriptions from their doctors to take their own lives. In the first 17 years of that program, the number of people who actually took their lives when they had the pills, 700 and 52. 94% were Caucasian. More than half had finished college. 400 people in Oregon got the pills but never took them. So the problem with all of these numbers I've just recited is that they actually don't tell a simple story of what is called physician-assisted suicide or sometimes assisted dying because it's not that obvious. And getting at it is really something that will take a good, solid debate. So let's have it. Yes or no to this statement. Legalize assisted suicide. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City. We have four superbly qualified debaters arguing for the motion. Please, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Peter Singer. And, Peter, you are a professor of bioethics at Princeton. You've written some classic books, uh, Animal Liberation, Practical Ethics. You are often described as, and wait for this, the world's most influential living philosopher. You subscribe to a theory of ethics called utilitarianism. If you could explain that in one sentence, what would it be? (laughs) Sure, in one sentence, utilitarianism is the view that the right thing to do is the act that will have the best consequences, all things considered, of the options open to you. You nailed it in one sentence. (laughs) And please tell us who your partner is. My partner is Andrew Solomon. Uh, Andrew is a writer who's written very movingly about this issue. And if you look at the talks he's given on TED.com, you will find that 8 million people have viewed them, whereas my talk has only been viewed by 1 million. Ladies and gentlemen... (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Solomon. Andrew, uh, you are a professor of clinical psychology at Columbia. You are an award-winning author of several books, including uh, Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity, and The Noonday Demon. You have also written about your family's own experience with assisted suicide, and in an article from 1995, you note that Uh, Back in the 90s, no one wanted to hear about it or ask about it, that the subject was completely taboo. Now it's legal in five states and 20 years have gone by. Have times changed? Is the subject still taboo? Well, it's somewhat less taboo, but in a society in which people tend to be in denial about the reality of mortality altogether, getting them to talk about this is still frequently a struggle. Thank you. Andrew Solomon. 
Our motion is legalize assisted suicide, and we have two debaters who will be arguing vociferously against this motion. Please, let's welcome Baroness Elora Finlay. Baroness uh, Finlay is a member of the House of Lords, and after this, she's just Elora. She has agreed that while she's here in the former colonies, she will drop the honorific. <laughs> she is, uh, more importantly, a palliative care physician. She is president of the British Medical Association. And Elora, um, doctors everywhere uh, are, for the most part, opposed to, to these laws, but the majority of the public, most everywhere, support us. How come? It's important to remember that doctors know the complexities of trying to do assessments as to whether somebody really wants this or not and and all the other issues that would have already been touched on. And they also often have memories of things that might have happened a quarter of a century ago. I'm going to stop you right there because I think you're getting into your debate material. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm just so enthusiastic. Thank you. Elora Finlay. Thank you. And tell us, please, who your partner is. The kind, caring... Dr. Daniel Somacy. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Daniel Somacy. Uh, and Daniel, you're, you, you, wear, you wear several hats. You're also arguing against the motion legalize assisted suicide, but you wear several hats. You're a professor of medicine and ethics uh, and in the Department of Medicine and Divinity School at the U of Chicago. Uh, you've also have been a member of the Presidential Committee on the Study of Bioethical Problems since 2010. You have an MD and a PhD. What we're wondering is, you know, with these hats you wear, medicine, ethics, religion, do they clash or do they work well together? Well, I, I think in some ways what it really means is I have too many bosses, but, uh, but beyond that, um, they fit together seamlessly for me, really. I mean, doctor, when you think about it, means teacher, um, and I try to just be a good teacher. Ladies and gentlemen, the team arguing against the motion, and those are our four debaters. Let's begin with round one. Round one, our motion is legalize assisted suicide. Here we have opening statements from each debater in turn. Supporting the motion, Legalize Assisted Suicide, Andrew Solomon. He is a professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University, author of the book, Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Solomon. Because much of modern medicine prolongs not living but dying, we need to rethink death itself. Aid in dying needs to be tightly regulated, as any life or death matter does. But while no one should be pressed into assisted dying, no one should be categorically denied that right. It's about dignity. In his dissent in Cruzan, Supreme Court Justice William Brennan said, an ignoble end steeped in decay is abhorrent. A quiet, proud death, bodily integrity intact, is a matter of extreme confidence. It's not about depression. When hope of recovery is gone, when one achieves relief from physical symptoms only at the cost of mental clarity, the wish to end your life may be rational. And it is about the limitations of medicine. It's nothing short of medical arrogance to say that palliative care and hospice can adequately deal with the end of every life. When my mother's friend, Sandy, was dying of cancer, my mother visited and saw her in the hospital where she was screaming in pain and so heavily medicated that she was unable to recognize the other people in the room. And when she came home, my mother said, if I ever get to that state of pain, promise that one of you will shoot me. 
My mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer when she was 56. And when her first chemotherapy failed, she said that she would submit to another round of agonizing treatment only on the condition that someone got her those pills. By the time of her third chemo, she was in dilapidated health, but she also had the pills. And the agony became unimportant because the symptoms were permanent only until she decided that she could take no more, and so the disease was no longer in control of her. My mother went to see a gastroenterologist two years after she got sick, who told her that she had significant tumors in her intestines and would soon be unable to digest food. She called my brother and me, and she said that it was time. It was all very much as we had planned it. And then as her voice slowed with the medication, she said, I'm sad to be going, but even with this early death, I wouldn't want to change my life for any other life in the world. I've seen other deaths, and I remember feeling that they belonged to the hospital or the illness. This death was my mother's own. She was the same person in death that she had been in life, and it was her right to choose it over a death like Sandy's, and it should be everyone's right. Thank you, Andrew Solomon. Our motion is legalize assisted suicide. And here to argue against the motion, Daniel Solmacy. He is Kilbride Clinton Professor of Medicine and Ethics in the Department of Medicine and Divinity School at the University of Chicago. Ladies and gentlemen, Daniel Solmacy. As you heard, I'm a physician. And, and part of my job is to help people to die with dignity and in comfort. Now, we strongly support the right of patients to refuse treatments and believe physicians have a duty to treat pain and other symptoms, even to the point of hastening death. But empowering physicians to assist patients with suicide is quite another matter, striking at the heart not just of medical ethics, but of ethics itself. Which is more important, people or their preferences? If interests take preference over the people who have them, then assisting the suicide of a patient who has lost interest in living is certainly something that would be morally praiseworthy. But it would also follow that active euthanasia ought to be permitted, that the severely demented could be euthanized without their explicit consent, and it also follows that infanticide ought to be permitted for children with congenital illnesses. Human dignity ultimately rests not on a person's interests, but on the value of the person whose interests they are. I don't have to ask you what your preferences are to know that you have dignity. And Martin Luther King says that he learned this from his grandmother who told him, Martin, don't let anybody ever tell you that you're not a somebody. And the message is that it doesn't matter what a person looks like, how productive that person might be, how others view that person, or even how that person may have come to have viewed herself. What matters is that everybody is a somebody. Now, assisted suicide and euthanasia require us to accept that it is morally permissible to act with the specific intention of making a somebody into a nobody, to make them dead. 
Intentions, not just outcomes, matter in ethics. Intending that somebody be turned into a nobody violates the fundamental basis of our interpersonal ethics, our intrinsic dignity. We live in a society that worships independence, youth, and beauty. The terminally ill, especially, need to be reminded of their intrinsic dignity at a time of fierce doubt. They need to know that their ultimate value doesn't depend upon how they look, how productive they are, or their independence. You see, assisted suicide flips the default switch. The question the terminally ill here, even if never spoken, is, you've become a burden for you and for us. Why haven't you gotten rid of yourself yet? Now, Elora and I live our lives dedicated to supporting patients and families, to listening to patients at the end of life, to relieving suffering, and to valuing them to the end. Daniel Salmesi, I'm sorry your time is up. Thank That's you very much. That's why you shouldn't vote for assisted suicide. Thank you. Daniel Salmesi. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. Stay with us. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion, Legalize Assisted Suicide. You have heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. I'd like to welcome to the lectern Peter Singer, the Ira W. Ducamp Professor of Bioethics in the University of Center for Human Values at Princeton and Laureate Professor at the University of Melbourne. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Singer. We are, of course, influenced by the idea that normally death is a bad thing. We often think of it as the very worst thing that can happen to us. There are a variety of reasons in normal circumstances. For instance, people want to go on living. So death is contrary to that very strong wish that people have. It violates their autonomy. If somebody else in particular kills them, it normally violates their autonomy, which is something that we ought to respect. Secondly, death ends your life, and most of us think of life as a positive, as a good thing, fortunately. So it prevents you from continuing to live that life that you find worthwhile. And thirdly, death is a bad thing for those who love and care for the person who dies. It's a source of grief. But there are very special circumstances in which none of these things apply. And that's what we're talking about tonight. There are circumstances in which the person who is considering death, wants to die. That is their autonomous choice. Secondly, there are cases in which a person has no more valuable life to look forward to, valuable by their judgment, not valuable by somebody else's judgment, imposing on them the idea that their life is still worthwhile, even though they have decided that life would not be worth living for them under some circumstances. And as for the grief that those who love them will feel, of course they will feel that grief if they die now. But in the cases covered by these statutes where people are terminally ill and likely to die, two doctors certify that they will die, they have less than six months to live, then the family is going to grieve anyway. 
And the caring family will at least feel that the person they love got to die at a time of their own choosing. And that's important. Now, I'm sure we're going to hear from probably Laura Finlay, I guess, that there are risks, that this is a dangerous thing, that it will lead to a slippery slope. That argument has been around in this debate for a long time. But now we have much more experience of the legalisation of assisted suicide. We have, in the Netherlands, in fact, more than 30 years' experience by the medical profession with the support of the Royal Dutch Medical Society, not against the doctor's views, of that practice, and fully supported by the Dutch population. So that although there's been a succession of governments, some conservative, some more liberal, they have not ever sought to repeal the legislation. And similarly in Oregon, we now have 17 years of experience, relatively small number of people dying each year, and as you heard, more of them requesting the prescriptions but not using them because they want to control. They want to know that they could end their life if they want to. So with that experience, the experience of Belgium as well, which followed the Netherlands, its neighbour, and then Luxembourg, we have not seen a slippery slope here. We have in fact found that these this legalisation is something endorsed by the populations concerned and supported by it, and they want it to continue. Thank you. Thank you, Peter Singer. Our motion is legalize assisted suicide, and here's our final debater making an opening statement against the motion, Elora Finlay. She is a leading palliative care physician. She is president of the British Medical Association. She is a member of the House of Lords. Ladies and gentlemen, Elora Finlay. Thank you. I'm a palliative care physician. For over a quarter of a century, I've looked after dying patients, thousands. I've had countless conversations about death and dying and supported each in what they tell me they need, not some kind of formulaic death. But I've seen despair return to enjoy life in newfound, unexpected and treasured ways. But let me tell you about someone. Let me tell you about David, aged 36. His spinal tumour was causing very difficult pain and incipient paraplegia. His surgeon, oncologist and family doctor all thought his prognosis was three months. He seemed a very clear-cut case for assisted suicide. He had a clear, settled wish, had mental capacity, was not being coerced, and was very, very distressed. After some persuasion, careful, gentle persuasion, he accepted my input, and gradually he lost the wish to die. Eleven years later, he phoned me. Is David an exception? No. He illustrates all the problems with proposals for assisted suicide. Over 16 years of Oregon's law, assisted suicides have risen four and a half to fivefold. In Washington State, which legalised assisted suicide in 2008, the rate of rise is far steeper, 43% in one year alone. When you normalise physician-assisted suicide, the underlying social dynamic changes. Laws aren't just regulatory instruments, they send a message And the message they send is that if you're terminally ill, ending your life is something that you probably ought to think about. So what are some of the problems? Well, let's look at prognosis. Prognoses are notoriously inaccurate. 
Even the most expert have a 50-50 chance of being wrong over a life expectancy of six months. Oregon's law requires a prognosis of six months or less, yet two years, nine months from request to death has been recorded. And how real is a settled wish? 40% of seriously ill people have some mental disturbance, often attributed to the illness or anxiety or treatment. And in 13 to 14%, this is a major treatable depression. Yet Oregon's own research shows a quarter of those seeking assisted suicide have depression, which is sometimes missed or overlooked. The researchers themselves said the current practice of Death with Dignity Act may not adequately protect all mentally ill patients. Pressures are harder to pick up than depression. Coercion can be subtle. The costs of care, life insurance about to expire, or just caregiver fatigue. The person who picks up that their family are stressed and doesn't want to be thought of badly. Are they being made to feel their lives are an inconvenience to be disposed of for the sake of others? Remember David? I saw him last weekend, 23 years on from that first referral. It is too dangerous to license doctors to prescribe lethal drugs for suicide. Please vote against this utilitarian motion, and it is utilitarian. Thank you, Laura Finley. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is legalize assisted suicide. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters can address one another directly, and they will take questions from you and from me. Our motion is this, legalize assisted suicide. And in our opening statements, we heard one team arguing for the motion, Andrew Solomon and Peter Singer, making the case that we need to rethink death in this country, um, that... uh, The principle here really is one of choice, and that if the instruments are available to people who are in the last phases of their life to choose the time and the manner of their dying, then that should be their right. They say that in practice, in Oregon and other states, uh, this practice has been demonstrated to be safe, legal, and rare. The side arguing against the motion, Elora Finlay and uh, Daniel Solmacy, they're both physicians, by the way, and both want no part of assisted suicide. They make the argument that to assist in taking somebody's life is to make a somebody into a nobody, and that that is plainly and morally wrong, that assisted suicide... Aid in dying is bad ethical reasoning, bad medicine, and bad policy, and that our knowledge of death is so full of holes that it should not be something that doctors are handing out in the form of a pill. This has to get philosophical to some degree, and I want to have you, Laura Finley, take that. So what is the difference between uh, a patient asking for pills to end his or her life in the last two weeks and asking to be taken off life support in presumed the last two weeks and dies in both cases? They are actually completely different decisions. The person on life support is in a way being held uh, in their state artificially, but their disease is progressing. What you're talking about here is somebody where their disease may stop progressing, they may actually get much better and improve, but you're making the decision to cut their life off and they're dying long before they may have died of their disease because you just can't tell. But why doesn't that apply to a decision to withdraw a ventilator? I mean, have you never seen a patient where a doctor said, I think we should take the ventilator away, and the patient actually lived quite a lot longer? That does happen occasionally, yes, but they are 
dying of their disease. And you shouldn't be giving people treatments that you think are not achieving a benefit because they're futile. So if the person doesn't want to be, have a treatment, they can refuse it. Ventilation is a treatment. And if they decide to, to refuse it, then they can, and I as a doctor must support them. But that is quite different to me deliberately assisting their suicide because what happens is then you stop actually actively trying to make the day in front of you better than it would have otherwise been. Let me ring in Andrew Solomon and I'll come back to you, Daniel. Andrew the withdrawal Solomon. of life support equipment requires a much more active role for the physician than the prescription of medication that someone can use to bring about the end of their own life. It involves the um, physical removal of equipment. It usually involves the administration of morphine to ease the person through the dying process. There's a great deal that a physician has to do. And this idea that somehow there is something that is natural, and because it's natural, it's okay, and the other thing is somehow unnatural seems very distorted to me. Daniel Somacy. Now, that's, uh, first of all, that's not what we're seeing, and that's not a reasonable way to, to defend the distinction between killing and allowing to die. I think um, treatments can be considered futile um, and terminated, but patients should not be considered futile and terminated. Um, and that's the difference intentionally in the structure of what we're doing, right? So if somebody's on, on a ventilator, right, and I stop it, um, my intention is not that they should be dead. My intention is that they be discontinued from a treatment that I think is needlessly causing suffering, prolonging their dying. But you don't and decide. I am not, they and I decide. Have not, I have not. I have not. No, they decide whether they go on or whether they want to be on it or not. I respect that. But if they haven't died, I don't say, I have failed. Please let me go out and get a pillow to smother them because my intention has been fulfilled when, they, when the treatment has stopped. The, the paradigm case in this country of terminating life life-sustaining treatment is the case of Karen Ann Quinlan. They were surprised... Daniel, let me stop you and take 15 seconds to remind people of Quinlan's case in the 1970s. Sure. Karen Ann Quinlan was a young woman in a vegetative state on a ventilator after uh, uh, partying and and overdosing on drugs. Um, And what uh, the family went to court to do was to say that uh, we want the right to be able to discontinue her ventilator. Um, And I'm totally supportive of that. Um, And that's what they... And then the she, judge, and then the she judge, lived the for... The judges decided this was what would happen. And to their surprise, um, the woman began breathing when she was disconnected. Um, but what they did was to discontinue a treatment that they thought was futile. Okay, let me, let me bring it back to, to uh, Peter Singer. So what I'm hearing your opponent say to some degree and was also made in the opening statements is that, is that, is that we, death remains uh, beyond, beyond uh, our understanding fully and, and dying remains fully beyond our understanding. And your opponents have come up with several examples of cases where uh, individuals would have lived longer. This is just purely the medical, not the, even the ethical question now, that we don't really know what we're doing and that the odds of killing somebody prematurely are out there. Look, you can't say that it will never happen, but is it right to condemn a vastly larger number of people to suffer when they don't want to because there may, you know, in one in several thousand cases perhaps, be somebody like the David that uh, Elora Finlay described? Um, I don't think so. And I would again emphasise, I think, the case that Daniel Salmacy just brought up of Karen Quinlan precisely shows that they are making decisions when they withdraw treatment. She lived another nine years. She never recovered consciousness, and she died without recovering consciousness. In my view, 
that was pretty pointless. But if you believe in intrinsic worth of human life, you shouldn't have seen the ventilator as futile. And let me just add that I have interviewed hundreds of people and heard stories of thousands more who wanted the option to be able to end their lives. And because they had to deal with a system in which what they were doing was illegal, they felt they had to do it while they still had enough vitality and enough self-control to take the lethal medications that they had been able to obtain. And they over and over and over and over again die months or sometimes years earlier than they would otherwise be going to die because they're afraid that they will lose that capacity. And my own mother said she could have lived longer if she hadn't been afraid that those intestinal tumors would make it impossible for her to ingest the All right, medication. let's let Laura Finley respond. But, oh, Laura Finley. But, but, Andrew, we're talking about physician-assisted suicide in which the patient has to take the medication. What you're arguing for is euthanasia. And that's not what we're debating Make the distinction for us. Well, in physician-assisted suicide, the doctor prescribes lethal drugs, the patient has to self-administer. What you're arguing for is that the doctor injects you with lethal drugs because if you can't take them yourself. I'm arguing no such thing. It's not a question of whether the doctor is injecting you. It's a question of whether you'll get into a hospital within which you will not be able to exercise your own volition anymore because the hospice system can be so controlling and you are so tightly monitored that you lose the capacity to take those drugs. Well, why would you have to kill yourself because you've got a failure with your healthcare system? I would suggest you need to rectify your healthcare system so people can make choices and control. Excuse me, but the only way to rectify that aspect of the healthcare system would be to give people the capacity to take those drugs under supervision of the healthcare system, which absolutely is precisely not. what you are opposing. No, absolutely not. Right down here in front. Uh, Kelly Posner from Columbia University. So my question really goes to, relates to capacity. The wish to end one's life is actually a symptom of depression. And there are studies that show that when you treat people who make this request with antidepressants, they actually withdraw the request. And you, Andrew, are one of the greatest proponents of antidepressant treatment. So I was just wondering how you reconcile that. Well, I think it's terribly important that people have a psychological assessment. When we propose this, what we propose is a highly regulated system. Um, And we have many highly regulated systems. In fact, we have a highly regulated system for making a decision to discontinue life support. We already have a system for people who don't want to go on living and who have a serious illness. That system, in which people have to be shown to be competent, in which they have to be assessed not to be suffering from a psychiatric illness, in which if there is any evidence that they might be, they have to undergo treatment before it's determined whether their decision is a fully rational decision, is an appropriate set of measures. And none of us are arguing in favor of an unregulated activity, and none of us are arguing in favor of helping people to die who have got a depression that could be caused to resolve. Would the other side like to respond? Yes, because actually the data, from, the data from Oregon itself shows that they're missing those serious depressions. And the Oregon system and the Washington system don't have a proper monitoring in place. There is no investigation after the death. There is no independent commission. And actually it relies on the doctor being honest enough to report what they've done. But there's no way of picking up 
if they haven't been. So your regulatory system is actually failing. And in Vermont, I understand that they thought that after three years, they wouldn't need to have the safeguards in place anymore because doctors could be trusted. And I was really horrified when I saw that. Peter Singer? But, but we, we are not wedded to the Oregon system or the Vermont system uh, without saying that it could be improved. We are simply saying that there is a legal system of regulating assisted suicide which is worth implementing. And the problem is that even Charlie Faulkner, whose bill it is, said that nothing can be watertight. And that's the problem. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. Stay with us. I'm John Donvan, and this is Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on American shores. The topic up for debate, should we legalize assisted suicide? If you can tell us your name, please. My question, I'm Peter Strauss. Um, This is a question for the opponents. Since you've injected the slippery slope argument, Could you give me your justification for saying it will lead to euthanasia, which is not what any of the statutes in New York call for or would allow? Daniel Samasi. If the justification, as we've heard, is that people have the right to choose, then the next step becomes, um, what about that person who is paralyzed and can't actually take the pills? So the justification becomes, well, that's actually discrimination because they actually can't take the pills, so we have to move from assisted suicide to euthanasia. Then the next step becomes, um, because the person can't um, say that they have the autonomous choice, we can infer that they would um, and that we would have um, what's called non-voluntary euthanasia, not involuntary, but non-voluntary, in which we, like we do for withholding, withdrawing, life-sustaining treatments, say that people who are demented can have the family say that the the treatment can be discontinued. And all of this has actually happened um, in the Netherlands already. All right, Daniel, we see where you're going with that, and I want to take it to Andrew Solomon, because you, well, you, you you just have, you know, painted the staircase of the slippery slope here, and I want to ask uh, Andrew Solomon, it, it sounds, you know, it sounds real, it sounds concrete. Does it concern you? Well, I would start by saying that um, uh, the situation in the Netherlands and what's been dealt with in that law is different from what's been dealt with here. Um, Like Peter, I believe that there is room for improvement even in the laws that currently exist. But in Oregon, we have had 17 years of this law. There has been no evidence of involuntary euthanasia. There has been no evidence of physicians giving um, uh, people who are disabled um, injections to terminate their lives. The law is narrow and specific. We all live on a slippery slope. There are many practices within our society that taken to extremes would be incredibly damaging and detrimental. And we can contain the damage in this and accomplish an enormous, enormous good. Laura Finley, do you feel that Oregon is evidence that the slippery slope is not necessarily inevitable? No, not at all, because you've got no way of detecting abuse. And actually, if you talk to the uh, campaign organisations in Oregon, they actually are wanting to campaign eventually for it to just be a pill that you can have without having to see the doctor and go through all that. If you look at the Netherlands, they're now using euthanasia more and also the complications that arose with physician-assisted suicide because of vomiting and nausea and so on. They've right. gone over to injecting the drugs they, in Belgium. They've always done that. That's, that's in, really not right. In, they, in they, Belgium, they've extended it. There's been approval for a prisoner 
who wants to have euthanasia because he doesn't want to carry on living in prison and so on. So it's not a slippery slope downwards. It's an incremental extension that we're seeing where the law's been changed. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator, and we have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, legalize assisted suicide, right in the center there. Hi, I'm Nisha Gupta. Um, Dr. Finlay, earlier you argued that life support and taking someone off such ventilation is justified due to the fact that their illness is progressing. However, many people applying for assisted suicide are in the same position. And I understand there's always exceptions to the rules in your personal experience, David. Um, What about the candidates whose illness does not turn around and does progress and worsen? What's your justification or reasoning that differentiates the two? Okay, thank you for that question. Uh, All the patients I look after have got non-curable illness. They all have progressive illness. What I'm saying is that you can't be certain. Let me tell you one story. A woman who was desperate to be taken off her ventilator but wanted a lethal overdose. Her husband was very angry that we weren't giving her a lethal overdose. One morning, I persuaded him to go out to the pub for a drink, let me have half an hour alone with her, which I did. In that time, I asked her, what's the worst thing for you at the moment? And she said it was the whiskers on her chin. And I said to her, would you like me to give you a quick facial? And, and, and she said, yes, we made her up. And her comment was, when we showed her in a mirror, she said, I feel like a woman again. And from that point on, she never asked for lethal overdoses but she asked to be made up every day. Why? Because she realised that she could be a woman again and have personal worth. My argument is that this motion comes from despair, from seeing that there is no worth left in a human being once they're ill and once they appear to be dying. But you just can't tell. And I want doctors to have to strive to improve quality of life. Peter Singer. I mean, I I, I find it a very sad story, actually, that that uh, that was so important to to that woman, that sense of being a woman. But but um, you've got whiskers on your chin all the time. I'm afraid I would like mine plucked. Okay, but but you know, I I think in a way it's 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 trivialising the reasons why people ask for physician assistance in dying. it's, you know, it's, it's things like being nauseous, being uh, feeling breathless, being able to lie there and not being able to do anything. Um, I mean, it's, it may be that pain can generally be controlled, although I've certainly read palliative care specialists who acknowledge that it can't in every case, except by making the patient unconscious. But, um, you know, that's then is, is getting, I think, very close to what we're talking about. I, I, I've seen surveys that say that the majority of American uh, intensive care specialists have used terminal sedation. That is, they sedate the patient to the point of unconsciousness. The patient, of course, then does not uh, eat and they don't tube feed the person, so the patient then dies. I mean, what's the difference between giving the patient so many drugs that they're unconscious and they die or um, allowing them to take a drug which, at their choice and at their time, will end their life? Well, your, your opponents say the answer is intent. I think the, but I think you have to accept, surely, I mean, it's a fictional notion of intent to say that you intentionally make somebody unconscious knowing that you're not going to feed them and you're not intentionally ending their life? Come on. Andrew? 
Let's just let, Andrew, you're going to follow up quickly. so that we I will start. quickly. First to say that I think we're all agreed that compassionate medical care is to the good and that anyone who can find meaning in life or can be helped to find meaning in life should be encouraged to do so and receive every possible support. But I think, in keeping with what Peter has just said, that there are a great many people exploring a great many means to bring these ends to their lives. There are people who are shooting themselves in houses by themselves because this is unavailable. There are people who take this medication. Someone I interviewed recently was the wife of someone who had managed to get medication and took it and vomited and knew he couldn't get another prescription and had to eat his vomit in order to ensure that he came to an end. There is back alley euthanasia going on in various ways ways, and it is uncontrolled and unregulated, and if it were legalized, it could be brought more into um, control. Third row. Jesse Silverberg. This is to the team arguing for the motion. Uh, So physicians are fallible. Uh, If we legalize assisted suicide, are we asking them to risk their integrity? No, I don't think we're asking them to risk their integrity. We're asking them to to act with integrity, um, to consider carefully whether the circumstances are the ones that are prescribed in the law, which, as we said, could be have various kinds of safeguards and reviews, and will minimise those kinds of mistakes. Up there against the wall. Good evening. My name's Carolyn Simpson. Um, hypothetically, if someone were in excruciating pain, no matter what you did in terms of palliative care, would you still be against physician-assisted suicide? Excellent question. Yes. Uh, The person who is in the kind of excruciating pain you're talking about, um, under my care or Dr. Uh, Finlay's care, uh, would be able to get increasing doses of morphine until the point that their pain was relieved, whether that hastened um, uh, their death or not. Uh, I think think your partner wants to take a crack at it also. I've seen patients whose pain score was 11 out of 10 not just 10 out of 10. I have sat there with a syringe full of diamorphine and injected slowly, milligram by milligram, minute by minute, until their pain score is down and it is bearable. When you work with them, and it is hard work, they come through and they often have a fulfilment that they never imagined they could have before. Okay, I'm but gonna, that's I'm not the stu- question. You've both evaded the question. The question asked you to accept the Peter hypothesis Singer. that you can't relieve the excruciating pain. It's an attempt to understand your underlying philosophical or ethical position, and neither of you, you've both just evaded that question. But no, because I don't accept... <laughs> no, there's a fundamental premise here and a misunderstanding. You're painting a hypothetical question. I'm saying I faced it practically and I still oppose physician-assisted suicide. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. (laughs) Where our motion is legalize assisted suicide. On to round three. Round three, closing statements. And here to summarize his position for the motion, legalize assisted suicide, Peter Singer, professor of bioethics at Princeton University and author of the book Practical Ethics. We want you to support this motion because, firstly, we believe that people should be the ones to decide for themselves whether they think that continued life is worthwhile for them or not. We don't think that it should be up to anybody else to say, we think your life is worthwhile. And secondly, we think that there is a lot of unnecessary suffering, whether it's excruciating pain or not, there is suffering and distress 
of uh, various sorts, which continues and is going to continue for the foreseeable future in this system, and it could be relieved by a relatively simple legislative reform that, has, that exists already and has been shown to work. But I just want to quote Janet Colbert. She's a retired oncology nurse, so she knows a lot about cancer and about people dying from cancer. She now herself has terminal liver cancer. But she supports this because she said, as I battle my illness, I would like the choice and comfort that comes with the option of aid in dying. That's all we're asking for. Thank you. Thank you, Peter Singer. The motion, legalize assisted suicide. And here with his closing statement on the motion, Daniel Solmazy, professor of medicine and ethics in the Department of Medicine and Divinity School at the University of Chicago, speaking against the motion. You know, I get questions uh, frequently from patients who ask how I can be opposed to assisted suicide when they're getting sick from their chemotherapy, are depressed and in pain, and spending more time in the hospital than outside it. So I ask them, why are you still getting chemotherapy? Why go to the hospital? Suicide is always interpersonal. It's an act of communication. Many persons who raise the question of assisted suicide are doing so because they're really testing the waters. They're asking us if we care enough to try to stop them. And when we don't stop them, we confirm their deepest fears and make it difficult for them to see an alternative. And if the suicide happens, their physicians and families must wrestle with it the rest of their lives. We shouldn't be about constructing a society that makes assisted suicide routine. Rather, we should redirect our energies towards making sure that all patients get the kind of care that I think we all want. So I want you to vote for that kind of high-quality, compassionate care at the end of life and for the sort of ethical world that really makes that possible. Thank you, Daniel Somezi. And that is our motion, Legalize Assisted Suicide. And here to summarize his position supporting this motion, Andrew Solomon. He is author of the award-winning book, Far From the Tree, and the other book, Nune Demon. Andrew Solomon. I take exception to the idea that all pain is treatable. It's not true to clinical data, and it's not true to personal experience. And I also take exception to the idea that we value life by insisting that somebody to borrow your phrase, not become a nobody. Um, That can be care, but it can also be oppressive. Rilke wrote, we need in love to practice only this, letting each other go, for holding on comes naturally. We do not need to learn it. Simone de Beauvoir's mother begged her for help when she was sick, and Simone de Beauvoir instead took the word of her doctors, and afterwards she wrote, Beaten by the ethics of society, I had abjured my own. One is caught up in the wheels and dragged along, powerless in the face of specialist diagnoses, their forecast, their decisions. A race had begun between death and torture. I asked myself how one manages to go on living when someone you love has called out to you in vain. Let us not treat those we love with that pusillanimous disregard. Let us not institutionalize and enshrine in law prohibitions that force us to suffer contrary to our beliefs and force us to watch those we love suffer contrary to their expressed wishes. Thank you, Andrew Solomon. 
Our motion is legalize assisted suicide. And here to summarize her position against this motion, Laura Finlay, a palliative care physician and president of the British Medical Association. It's all too easy to be swayed by emotion and fear. But human beings are uniquely interconnected. If I accede to the request to provide lethal drugs, I actually give the message, yeah, I think you're right, you'd be better off dead. I don't give the message that you are of worth. I've been there myself. My own mum was in hospice, dying, angry, terribly angry, that I was opposing the assisted suicide that she wanted. An argument about philosophy with a member of staff let her see that her mind still worked and she still had something to offer. She didn't die. She lived four more years. And in those four years, she saw her two great-grandsons born and she said they were the richest years of her life. I beg you, it's not like in the movies. Assisted suicide isn't straightforward and clean and quick. Some people awake, six did in Oregon. Some people take a long time to die, up to 104 hours. That's not dignified. Don't vote for this dangerous, dangerous law that actually deprives people of the possibility of having their dignity and having doctors who have to work to improve their quality of life. This law allows them to throw the towel in. Thank you, Laura Finlay. And that concludes our closing statements. It's all in now. I have the final results. You have voted twice before the debate and again after the debate, and the team whose numbers have changed the most will be declared our winner. Let's look at the preliminary vote on the motion, legalize assisted suicide before the debate. 65% of you agreed with the motion. 10% were against. 25% were undecided. Those are the first results. Again, it's the team whose numbers have changed the most between the first and the second votes will be declared our winner. Let's look at the second vote. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 67%. They picked up two percentage points. Two percentage points is the number to beat. The side arguing against the motion, their first vote was 10%. Their second vote was 22%. They pulled over 12 percentage points. The side arguing against the motion, legalized assisted suicide, declared our winner. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City. Dana Wolf is our executive producer. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Maureen McMurray, Taylor Quimby, and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is director of production. Chris Kamakawa is our researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit iq2us.org. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR. Crucial support for the Intelligence Squared U.S. debate series comes from its generous members and donors, with a special thank you to the Rosencrantz Foundation, dedicated to promoting fresh and effective intellectual perspectives and encouraging the highest levels of achievement and innovation in public policy. Additional support comes from Christopher W. Johnson, Profit Capital Asset Management, the Georgie e. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Paul E. Singer, David A. Coulter, and Mortimer 
D.A. Sackler. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. There is so much new to watch, listen to, read, and discuss, whether you're binge-watching, downloading, or looking for the next great read. NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast calls out the best, most creative, and most fun things out there. Something new to make you happy? Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Find it on iTunes under Podcasts.